Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Janet Soskis. Uh, she is the William K. Warren Distinguished Research Professor of Catholic Theology at Duke Divinity School and the Professor of Philosophical Theology, Emerita Fellow at Jesus College, University of Cambridge. And we're talking about her book today, Naming God, Addressing the Divine in Philosophy, Theology, and Scripture. Uh, Dr. Soskis, wonderful to have you on today. Thank you. Nice to be here. So the first question that I generally start with is why this book? Why did you feel this book needed to be written? And why did you feel personally that you need to write it? Well, it was a long gestation with this one. I've been working on it for quite a long time, thinking about the issue. And uh, so there's a number of tributaries that flow into the final river to the sea, as you say. Um, but I think it was um, being struck uh, uh, actually by something that um, Derrida mentions. I know you've done another interview on, on a book on that. And um, of course, he's not a philosophical theologian or a theologian at all, but he, he says in one of his essays um, that he notes that all the mystical texts begin with invocations and prayer. And he points out, well, of course, this is necessarily when you're speaking of God, because you're always in danger of misspeaking. How do you address the divine? You have to pray for the grace to do so properly. And this struck me. And of course, I recognize that that's exactly the way, for instance, Augustine begins his confessions by beseeching God to give him words. And you realize that's, that's not just epistemic. It's not just about knowledge. It's doxological. It's whenever you are addressing God in prayer, as, as Augustine is doing in the Confessions, the whole book is a, a big prayer poem to God, um, there's a, a danger of, of idolatry because we're all, as it were, persons of unclean lips, uh, as the prophets say, that how do you speak about God? So I was struck by this. And if you look back to the various of the texts we call mystical, you'll see they begin with this kind of invocation. Um, and so the difficulty, and then I noticed that um, pre-modern, uh, philosophers of religion or theologians were much more exercised in how it is we could name God than how it is, it is that we could know that God exists. Um, and it wasn't just as we might readily think, oh, because they just, you know, assumed God existed in those days, they didn't feel the need to prove it. It was rather they were, they thought that it's a big thing to be trying to name God. Um, because any kind of naming implies a circumscribing, perhaps a delineating of the essence. And you can't do that with the deity, not without idolatry. So this just got me interested. And one thing I'll say more before taking up all this interview no, with good. your first question <laughs> is, um, um, you know, I know there was a very interesting article again um, by a French thinker, Jean-Luc Marion, uh, 
And he pointed out that Descartes, in his famous effort to prove his own existence and um, doing so by proving the existence of God um, and his own uh, subsequently, he also derives from this various um, qualities of God, eternal, immutable, omniscient. And, and he says at the end of this, Descartes, um, these are all things that the theologians would agree with. These are all titles. Uh, except that they aren't, because <laughs> the theologians, although all these terms are used, they're even used in scripture, eternal, immortal, invisible, um, but none of these pre-modern thinkers thought you could demonstrate these by reason alone, which Descartes did, which Locke did, which a number of modern theorists do think, and the whole modern trajectory of philosophy of religion. And there's another interesting thing that um, Marion says, that prior to this, prior to Descartes, these things were discussed not as, as, um, as divine names, and they were anchored within the divine names tradition. And there were the, the, not just theologians but, and philosophers, but ordinary people understood there were hundreds and hundreds of divine names, and they were used in prayer and liturgy and so on. These, it uh, struck me, they become, and here I move from Mero to myself, these become reduced in the early modern period, these divine names, to just a few eternal, immutable, invisible, um, omniscient. And they're not called names anymore. They're called attributes. So attributes clearly are different from names. Maybe I'll stop there because you might want me to ask a question about why that's so, yeah. <laughs> rather than me monologuing on. I actually had written down to ask the difference between names and attributes. But before we go there, I am interested in the distinction um, or perhaps the conflation of uh, philosophers of religion and theologians. What is the difference between a philosopher of religion versus a theologian? Or are they really, you think, the same thing, just kind of historically transmuted into each other? Well, I think it depends on um, who you're asking. These are all terms of art. <laughs> well, this right? is academia, yeah, yeah. right? Like, the, <laughs> like, yeah, of course, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, often within philosophy of religion, uh, you find there's a parallel to philosophy of music, philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of science. It's applying a rigorous um, analytic or discursive process to a particular area. I think um, philosophical theology, which is what my chair at Cambridge was, philosophical theology, is interested in the philosophical problems that are generated within a religious tradition itself. Um, and so there, you still need the tools of a philosopher, um, but they're, they're, the prompt is, is different, as it were. Um, so, um, for instance, if I go back, well, to names and attributes, do you want me to go back there or do? Um, well, um, actually, even before you go there, like uh, you yeah, said, sure. analytic or discursive. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but that's kind of interesting to me. Do you see those as like two different ways of doing things as kind of the same? Are, you, are those synonyms for you, or do you see um, two different approaches, analytic and discursive? Well, I, I, I see a lot of complementary techniques. I mean, I, I'm trained, I did my doctorate at Oxford. I'm in, trained in the analytic tradition. However, uh, I worked a lot with Paul Ricoeur, who's in the hermeneutical tradition. I've, in this book, used some phenomenology. I, I, you know, I don't really... Um, think that one should, re it's horses for courses, really. 
you in one of the chapters of this book, I go into kind of analytic philosophy of language because that's appropriate for what's needed in that chapter. In the final chapter, I use more hermeneutics and phenomenology. So I I don't really um, uh, approve too much of camps. Um, I'm glad I had uh, the training I did do in analytic philosophy and philosophy of language. That was really my primary. My first work was in philosophy of language. I wrote a book on metaphor. Um, uh, but metaphor naturally escapes a lot of the kind confines of a rather of a of a strict analytic philosophy. Uh, indeed, when you know I went to Oxford because it was full of philosophers of language, but I wanted to work on metaphor and religious language. And frankly, at that time, I might as well have said I wanted to work at fairies at fairies at the bottom of the garden because no one was interested in either of those. Now, I shouldn't say no one. There was one philosopher of science who was my supervisor, uh, along with the philosopher of religion, who was very interested in metaphor. Uh, but at that time, um, philosophers of language weren't interested in metaphor at all. So you, these different, different schools have different moments, different times, different concerns. Uh, and they're all, they're all necessary. If you want to do um, something like philosophy of mind, the analytic tradition is probably pretty useful. If you want to do thinking about religious language and, and prayer and praise and all these categories, I think you're going to have to broaden out a bit. Yeah. Even like, as you're talking, I'm like, well, I can see why you ended up working with Ricoeur, right? Like, uh, that's my, my own background is in philosophical hermeneutics. So <laughs> right. like I did, I read Gautamer, I read Ricoeur. Um, and that's because yes. like, uh, I, I ended up going somewhere and one of the professors did continental philosophy and I went for him. And then I found out that most of them were analytic philosophers and I wanted to do, uh, you know, hermeneutics and philosophy of art. And like you were saying about metaphor, these are things that are probably more suited to a discursive approach. And so I could see why you ended up where you did, right? That, that makes total sense to me. Um, so, but uh, that takes us to that broader question. And, uh, you know, as you talk about metaphors, I can see how it leads into this discussion of names versus attributes. Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, um, apart from the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of divine names and, and the list of attributes gets very restricted um, and uh, incomprehensible to most people, um, uh, you can see that uh, attributes to us and to most Western Lang European languages, most languages, attributes or their cognates suggest qualities um, someone or something has, like weighing 500 pounds or having red hair. Or, you know, it, it, it suggests a quality someone has, but names um, just uh, don't suggest any such thing. A, a, a name may be Peter, a name may be mom, a name be you there. You know, you can, you, names are means by we call upon someone, we summon them, we upbraid them, um, we uh, reproach them. So names are uh, about being in relation and they're, they're a, naming is a, um, a, a human activity. Naming is a, it profoundly reaches across all our activities. I think it deserves philosophical, probably more philosophical attention than it gets. So um, certain things, if you view them as attributes, eternal, um, it, it becomes a quality God has. And, and so I think what happens in early modernity is there's a tendency, for better or for worse, to uh, 
go for proofs to the existence of God um, and, and that generate certain attributes and think that those deliver God. I mean, frankly, John Locke does this. And um, in, in Locke's corner, for Locke's defense, um, he was a, a, um, a devout Christian. He really, coming out of the wars of religion, the idea of having a demonstrable proof that was neutral, that didn't rely on scripture, didn't mention Jesus at all, was highly desirable. But of course, what you get Locke is a particularly, I'm afraid to say, a particularly crude example of this because he he says, well, we, you know, prove uh, God exists and we get a number of qualities um, that are qualities we admire in a man and we just sort of magnify them up, bounce them up a lot. Um, and, and then we've got, you know, a, an account of God. So this is yeah, deism full stream, really, and it's making God a big jumped up man. And of course, in the past 30 or 40 years, um, all kinds of people, including a lot of feminist theologians have leapt on this and say, the Christian God is you know, just the wizard of Oz. He's this hateful figure. How can you worship a God who's immortal and invisible and eternal? And um, although um, I, I, I would consider myself um, a feminist, uh, I, certainly um, couldn't go along with all these criticisms. I do think they, they, however, accurately affect a kind of rough deism that's in the air in modernity that probably a lot of Christians as well as anti-Christians just take is Christianity. I mean, a good anti-Christian example of this is Richard Dawkins, who's made a living out of saying the Christian God is this big jumped up guy who beats people with a stick. And, um, you know, so I really felt a need to respond to this and, and to say, well, no, that's not where it comes from. For instance, let me go through with, I've mentioned Augustine already. Um, for Augustine to say God is um, um, omnipresent uh, doesn't mean like a big gaseous thing. It means that at every stage in Augustine's life, God was present, even Augustine says, um, because he only comes to a full Christian um, uh, confession later in life, even when um, um, Augustine did not know that God was there with him, God was there with him, because there's no place God is not, no time God is not. God, God's reality as the creator is there in every place and every time. So this is not a, a steely sort of God looking down through a big magnifying glass at us, but rather what it means for God to be creator and present to God's creation. I mean, actually, the doctrine of creation turned out to be crucial in this book. So, but maybe we'll come yeah, to that. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, uh, and forgive me for kind of ruminating here. And some of this is just to make sure I'm on the same track, but some of my own thoughts on this. Um, Really, I really struggled with the idea of God being immutable um, in respect to like what we see in Scripture. Um, and then when you think about what it means that God is unchanging, uh, and you talk about this with the apophatic uh, theology and this idea of circumscribing, um, trying to bring together two different things here. One is this idea that um, we that naming god as as you talk about it seems to be to give us a way forward right like to to live a um 
to creatively, and I mean that in the, the creation sense, not like uh, just artistic inspiration, though that's part of it, but to, to creatively move forward into uh, a, a, not more than a good life, a godly life, while at the same time you have this in a very modernistic uh, uh, circumscribing, um, we, especially following the wars of religion, where it's like, well, we know that that way doesn't work, right? It's very negative. And so when we look at the way that that works with something like um, immutable, immutable is answering, is a very strong answer to heresy when really what we're talking about is that God is faithful. Like from a logical standpoint, it's like when God is so far above us, when he says yes, does he really mean yes? And the answer, of course, is he does. That's When he says yes, he means yes. When he says no, he means no. He is immutable, unchanging, right? And like that's, if does that fit with what you're talking about with Augustine? It's really goes back to him being faithful, which is a, a, positive attribute a a relational attribute and there's this but there especially following the wars of religion there were a lot of people saying well that's not how we do it right and and a lot of times they were sometimes they were not correct and sometimes they were correct you're like i don't know how you're trying to live but that's not working can we try something different is that yeah. a fair way to approach what you're saying mm. Mm. well i don't really dwell on um the wars of religion, but I think uh, what we understand is the have to understand is the locus of the divine names, and and most profoundly, and I'll come back to immortal and invisible and eternal. Um, that um, there's a consensus from very very early on amongst Jews, Christians, and Muslims that God is unnameable, strictly speaking. And the reason for this is because of what these faiths believe in about creation. And by this, I don't mean seven days. I mean that God is the creator of everything. This is the way the creeds begin. Creator of everything, visible and invisible, that God created all things. And there were early debates in the church because obviously you're going to have some smart aleck Platonist say, well, if your God made everything, did he make space and time? And the answer to this from the first and second century already is yes, God created everything because they realized that matter and um, time are functions of one another. I mean, we didn't need modern physicists to tell us this. So, so um, all these things, God creates space and time. So God's relationship to the all is different from ours. And that, frankly, banjaxes a lot of religious language. I can't say for I'm instance- I'm so sorry. I, I, I Forgive my, my American ignorance. Did you say banjaxes? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It, it <laughs> completely blows it up. Okay. <laughs> I, Thank you. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, because if, if I say, um, I, um, I, I cause this coffee cup to move from my left hand to my right hand. Um, and then I say, and of course, God caused the universe to come into being. And I, but I then have to qualify that, of course, outside of space and time. That's not a minor qualification. No, no, it's I really mean, not. All my actions in terms of, of, of moving a coffee cup or, you know, adjusting the lighting in my room are within space and time. So cause 
for God cannot be the same as cause. It doesn't mean that God doesn't cause the universe to come into being. We have to use that language, but we realize it's stretched and somewhat different. Now, a very good example of this, getting back to Locke again and, and the early modern use of the attributes, would be eternal. Because um, eternal was something that uh, ancient uh, um, philosophical theology amongst the, the Aristotle and Plato understood God to be eternal. But Aristotle's God, Aristotle, none of the ancient philosophers had the doctrine of creation from nothing or creatio ex nihilo, if you want to swank about, um, creation from nothing, which is fundamental to Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam. So um, it, it, Aristotle, for instance, believed that God didn't God wasn't a creator God. God was a kind of um, um, destination in Aristotle's scheme. God was a, a, a prime mover, a source of movement. But Aristotle believed that God had existed everlastingly, backwards and forwards, but also that the universe had existed everlastingly, backwards and forwards. In fact, he thought, he, he grasped, I think, the notion of creation ex nihilo, but he thought it was ridiculous. He said, from nothing, nothing can come. And of course, I think a modern physicist would say the same. If you've got really nothing, really, really nothing, no space, no time, how would you have anything? Now, that's not what the um, Jews and Christians thought. They thought God created everything from absolutely nothing and did so volitionally, however little we understand that. That is, it was, it was not something that God had to do, as in some Platonic schemes where the world just emanates from God like the rays emanate from the sun. Rather, God did this volitionally. And so within Christianity and Judaism and Islam, I'll, I'll just say Christianity from now on, um, to say God is eternal doesn't mean God lasts a long time backwards and forwards, but that God is the creator of time and so present to all time. And so Augustine can say that at every time in his life, God was all there. And you can do the same for immutability. And, and I think you're absolutely right that immutability is, it, it, these words come from scripture. And that's the other thing that all these terms are anchored in scripture. Um, and they, they, what it captures is God's loving kindness, God's um, loving kindness to Israel and then to the Christian church, you know, uh, but this, this faithfulness of God and the profound faithfulness of God as creator. I mean, one of the beautiful, I think beautiful, Examples of this from a writing of a mystic is, is that of Julian of Norwich, where she has this sort of understanding. She, she seems to see the, the, the world as a small thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of her hand, in the palm of her hand, not God's hand, palm of her hand. And she marvels that it's so fragile and little and, and it still exists. And then she says, and it came to me, it exists because God loves it. So it is simultaneously an altogether contingent, altogether fragile, but altogether secure in its existence because it exists because of the love of God. So I, I, I think that's quite a, a, a nice way of expressing what the doctrine of creation means and how it anchors into our lived lives. Absolutely. And one of the uh, doctrines... Uh though I think it's naming comes later, you see it. Uh, I've actually been reading Origin and Chrysostom and 
forgive me, I can't remember where I read it. <laughs> um, uh, but in one of those two, I was like, oh, that is, it's probably Origin because it was in his first principles. But I was like, that's the doctrine of accommodation, right? He was talking about God talks to us in human language, which is yes, yeah, yeah. like it, it, it's not like it, it's going to fail because it's human language and not that like God will succeed regardless. Like that's, that's the God is himself is infallible, but he is talking to us in uh, when you get to like Calvin and beyond, you're, you're talking about baby talk, right? Like he's like, uh, and this kind of goes to, you know, the whole band jaxing of, um, sorry, I'm just going to steal that now. That's amazing. Um, the band jaxing of religious language is that l religious language is ultimately baby talk for humans from a God who transcends the bounds of our language. Um, and can you, can you speak, how does do the doctrine of accommodation uh, yeah. fit into this yeah. whole picture? Well, I wouldn't even say it's baby talk. I mean, that's too close. Babies, I've got a 14-month-old granddaughter living with me at the moment, and well, she's not actually talking yet. Um, God, um, the point is, God knows us fully, right? So I think here, um, take you back a bit. Uh, the, the, the real revelation to me, so to speak, uh, speaking figuratively, <laughs> was... Um, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was I like, the, the podcast just got totally more interesting. Yeah, you're like, like I had a vision. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, um, sometimes these things come in funny ways. So it was Philo, who's a contemporary of Paul, Jew, Alexandrian Jew, Greek speaking, as most Jews of the Mediterranean basin were, and um, a commentator on his own scripture. And he wrote a treatise on Nate naming God on, well, on naming, uh, on the change of names. And um, the, 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 it was very influential on all subsequent Christian writers on, on the Cappadocians and, and the medievals and so on. But Philo there really understands he's, he's, he's a, what we call a middle Platonic philosopher. So he's not Neoplatonic. I know you've talked about that. He's middle Platonism. By this time, Philosophy, you know, we have access to all these books of Aristotle and Plato, but they had a melange. It was already a mix of these things. And um, uh, he was, you know, an, an educated person. I was going to say an educated man because they were all men. Um, an educated man would do grammar and rhetoric and so on. And he does this. He's um, as a standard for an educated Jewish person of his time. Um, but he's very, very clear about where he will depart, say, from Aristotle or where he thinks the philosopher all the philosophers known to him, or Plato. And it is really over this doctrine of creation, because he, he, he believes that God creates everything. Um, he believes, including space and time, he believes that this means our, our, our talk about God is going to be intrinsically troubled, uh, our naming God. Now, he will say it's our naming God. And in, in anti-grammar, to name something, you, you have... Uh, presumed to delineate its essence. And as a Jew, he knows this is heresy. You can't delineate the divine essence. Yet, as a Jew, he knows he has to name God. Why? Because the, in Hebrew, a, to, a Hebrew expression for prayer is to call upon the name of the Lord. So he has to call upon the name of the Lord. So how is he going to do this? And he goes back to Moses in the burning bush, which all the subsequent 
Christian writers will do too. And Moses asking God, well, God calling Moses first, and then Moses asking for a name and getting a sequence of names. And, and, and from this, uh, Philo concludes that God, strictly speaking, isn't nameable by, uh, by us, but by divine condescension, you could say accommodation, God gives us names by which we can name him. They don't still delineate the divine essence but they are given. And how do we name God? We don't name God by what God is in God's essence, because we can't know that, but we name God through God's mighty acts. So one of the names for God that's given to Moses, he's given the Tetragrammaton, of course, but it's also, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So that's a name that anchors God within the relationship to the ancestors of Moses. So this is a really important text in there. And, and, I think within the what I would call in the book the divine names tradition, because um, although we've sort of lost it, so many of the early fathers wrote books about the divine names. They were between philosophy and um, spirituality and doxology that many many wrote on them. We we tend to just reduce reduce it to just a famous one by Pseudo Dionysius, but um, no, many of them wrote it, and and it's always. Uh, coming back, the names that they cite ha all have to be names taken from scripture. And the same is true of Islam. They all have to be taken from the Quran and the, the Quran and the surahs um, because um, of the dangers of trespasses or of misnaming. So uh, I think that's very interesting that there's a grace. There's a grace because of our need. We have to call upon the name of Lord. So we're given these names. However, once they're given, as it were, then it's not as though philosophical reflection ends, but it's almost the beginning of what must it mean for God to be eternal? What must it mean for God to be immutable? And so on. So I don't want to get rid of those titles. I don't want to you know, even get rid in some sense of talking about the attributes, so I prefer not to use the language, but to house this within a different understanding. Absolutely. Um, can you... Uh, so... You moved past the Tetragrammaton to talk about the God of uh, Jacob and um, uh, Abraham, Isaac. Uh, wonderful that I put those out of order. Okay, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, excuse me. Um, how does the, uh, the Tetragrammaton, which I could see how that plays more into the attributes per se, like that modernistic thing, but how would that play in a pre-modern mindset? This, uh, you know, to say it as reverently as I can, I am that I am. This that yeah, sure. how, how does mm -hmm. that play out in a, in a na this pre-modern naming scenario? Yeah, yeah, no, really, really good question and very important. And, and I think the first couple of chapters of this book sort of are about that um, because uh, the first chapter is, is the Christian God a metaphysical monster? Sort of the second chapter is naming God at Sinai. And so in this encounter, um, where Moses is called by name and, and then trying to squirm out his obligation to go and um, tell the Pharaoh to release the Israelites, asks God for a name. And it's obviously very perplexing in the back. Uh, but God, it's interesting that God gives um, uh, Moses not, not just one name, but a sequence of names. Um, and 
uh, I am the one who is, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, and, and the Tetragrammaton, um, which of course is the, the four letter name of God, um, which Jews don't articulate. And so I won't articulate here either. I'll just say Tetragrammaton, the, the name. And uh, it's incredibly important because the name, and I think this is too little recognized, and I don't think I fully recognized it until I was got into this book, is the Tetragrammaton is the, the, the proper name of Israel's God, like Fred or Frank or PJ. You know, it's, 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 it, it's not like God. There are other Hebrew words for God. It is a proper name of Israel's God. And as, as we know, not articulated, often Jews classically and even today will say Hashem. They'll call God Hashem, which means the name. Right. <laughs> so they'll call God the name. Um, so, um, but the Tetragrammaton, uh, um, as you know, is, is really, it, it doesn't have a meaning, just like proper names don't strictly have meanings, but it suggests the Hebrew verb to be. And so it's a gloss. It could be, it could be rather the other things like I am the one who is, is a gloss on the tetragrammaton. Um, um, so, or, um, so I am who I am as we get it rather ponderously looks big and metaphysical, doesn't it? But I am who I am. Um, the Hebrew scholars tell me it's much more, I am the one who is with you and will be with you. So it's a name of presence and it's a name of promise. And it's just what you need if you're going to take a group of truculent Israelites through the desert for 40 <laughs> years. So it's, it's, I am the one who is with you and will be with you. Um, but from very, very early on and already in the Talmud, Jewish scholars um, were associating this as Christians would, I am the one who is, with the creation narratives in Genesis. And we're saying, as does Philo, that God is the one who truly is and all that, we, all, that all else comes from God, that we are creatures, you know, God. Now, that is the the origins, as it were, the font and origins of believing that God is being itself, which you're alluding to. So it's God is is the one who truly is. Um, I'm not imposing that um, on, on the Talmud, but they're definitely connecting um, the one who is with the creation narrative. God is the one who is. And then the rest of what we are, creatures, is contingent on God's grace. So I don't think that these um, titles like I am who I am uh, do buy into the deistic model at all. I mean, I, I think they did if we thought of it as perhaps we're intended to do, not just in English, but um, if we have, if we forget the, if we don't have access to the Hebrew and we've got just the Greek or the Latin, Latin, ego sum qui sum, very ponderous and wow, right in your face. Um, and that's been milked by a lot of um, people to criticize the, the God of the Bible as being just this big overpowering bully. But I don't think it's that at all. I think it's that uh, I'm the one who is with you and will be with you. And that's the line that, um, that I think we see traced in people like Gregory of Nyssa or St. Augustine. He understands God as the great I am, the great, the one who is. And in fact, it's interesting, Augustine at one stage in his sermons is talking, he's talking about one of the Psalms, and he gets back to Moses. These people randomly get back to Moses, all kinds <laughs> of places. And um, he talks about 
God is the one who is. And he says, don't worry. He's saying to his congregation, don't worry if you don't understand this. Think of what it means for you. Christ, he is the one who is. He is the I am, the one who is. So yeah. it, it all hooks up. Well, and yeah. so, and you talked about how um, because we cannot delineate God, we have to take the names of God as acts of God, if I understand you correctly. And I'm going to take a, a leap here with a, a chain of thought, and uh, I'd love just to hear your thoughts on it. But when you talk about the modernistic approach, when you talk about Descartes, and you talk about Locke, um, they're often starting with us, right? I mean, famously with Descartes, you have the I think, therefore I am. Then you have Locke, and, you, and you're talking about this very like crude, but very like ultimate deism, right? This idea that, uh, and I love it, you're like that they are just bouncing uh, a man up to like, a, like it's a greater form of man. And in many ways, we are creating God, you know, um, shoot, I can't remember the Greek philosopher uh, who talked about that we just create God in our image, but uh, that's, what, that's what they're doing, right? And I, I'm really struck by the weakness of the deist God it, and how open it is to this feminist critique because it's a very, uh, like when you talk about someone who's making something and then just lets it kind of run to run to evil. I mean, I, I can't help but think of like uh, this greater image of uh, God as uh, a man who's done his work and is sitting on the couch with a beer, right? Like he's exactly. like, and that's, he's is that, beers, yeah, he's yeah. like, no, I did what I was supposed to. Uh, I'm just gonna let it run its course. So we'll see what happens. And that's not, I mean, that is not the God who is with us. Right. And so is that a, I mean, even as you, you talked about this overwhelming bully, you use the term metaphysical monster. Um, is th that seems to be kind of a, the central concern for you that we see this very relational, very covenantal. Uh, and even that's hard for people to understand because most people, when they think covenant, they think contractual, which it's not the same thing. Um, am I am I following along with what you're what you're going for here? This this more relational, more relational God and how the modernist uh, really by flipping to starting with the individual really uh, has tried to delineate and circumscribe God. Is that a, is that a fair way to approach this? Well, um, I think there's been a tendency and not just in Locke, but in some kind of neo-Thomism and so on, if we want to go down there, scholastic Thomism to begin with reason and want to prove everything about God and then demonstrate these qualities and then, um, go out there and leave, you know, all the other prayer and Christ bits for later. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think that's the way that works in the best classical theology. And, and um, in there, I'd put Aquinas and Augustine, a number of a number of other people. Um, and uh, I, it's partly perhaps because in the modern period, it's been philosophy has been so dominated by epistemology. Now, if you think back to the doctrine of creation, as I've been describing, thinking about what it means for God to create everything and the profound implications of that for God's holding everything at being, as you say, at every moment, at all times, not just having done so a long time ago and then sitting back, but God, every moment is the moment of creation for God. So this um, means there's possibilities for what we call miracles all the way along the line. You know, it's not as though that's, God's created everything in a fixed causal order, and now he just, to do anything, has to poke a big stick into the world. You know? So 
God's presence to the world is 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 complete and is complete as creator. So I think that uh, all these things are altered. And I think that what one finds, if you think about creation ex nihilo, I know that a lot of Protestants really shudder. Um, we have a number of evangelical Protestant students who tell me this, that shudder when the word metaphysics is mentioned. <laughs> and, you know, Calvin had, you know, he was worried, worried about metaphysics, although he did allow, was quite useful in driving out the heretics. I seem to remember he says that in the Institute somewhere. But um, once you've got, you've got this whole thing, did your God create everything? Yes. Did God create even space and time? Yes. You've got a metaphysics, but a Christian metaphysics. It is not taken over from antiquity, as some theologians wrongly have said. It is distinctly Christian, and it's a rupture. It's a rupture in Western metaphysics because the whole relationality of everything um, uh, uh, is, is changed by understanding that we are creatures and related to the Creator. So um, I think then that uh, uh, we need to recover creation, Christian metaphysics, and many other um, philosophical theologians are, are working on this now. We we but we should, it shouldn't be regarded as a scary foreign thing to do. It's intrinsic, I think, to thinking of what it is to confess God to be the creator of all that is. Well, I'll give you a small example of this, this incipient deism. Um, and I completely understand it. Um, but one of my students was saying that they wanted him to come up with a more materialistic version of the doctrine of the Trinity because our world was so materialistic and we couldn't relate to an immaterial God. So this was, you know, not a student who, you know, it's a student. So um, I asked, well, a number, I said, so, well, uh, what do you mean by materialistic? I don't, I don't think you mean that God should drive a Lamborghini. You know, she didn't mean that. Um, uh, but she said, well, you know, an immaterial God relating to a material world. And so I think the, the answer to that is God is not immaterial. Angels are immaterial. <laughs> God is not a creature at all. We've sort of lost a lot when we stop thinking about crowns and dominions and, and angels. Be, what we've lost is the ability to see that God is not an invisible or immaterial creature. God is the creator and is totally present to, but outside this, temp, this temporal sphere. But because of that, also totally present to it. So in, throughout the book, there's a kind of a descant of uh, that God's ultimacy and intimacy are one. It is because God is, is not a very powerful figure that God can be closer to me than my own hands and feet, right? So that's what I want to get to. That, and, and what's excited to me about this book was the bringing together, and I think it's there in, in the subtitle, which actually the publishers gave it, not me, um, addressing the divine in philosophy, theology, and scripture, because I really want to bring philosophy of religion back to, uh, back to scripture and, and um, theology. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. And I, I think, too, that philosophy, um, a lot of philosophy brings you close to spirituality because you are aware of the godness of God 
And your contingency is a creature nonetheless wholly loved by God, which is a wonderful thing to think about. As I, I, I read in the early, been reading through the early church fathers, I was reading through the letters of Cyril of Alexandria. And one of the things that really struck me as he was dealing with uh, heretical opinions in his uh, diocese was, which I, think, I believe that was the term he was using or the term that was translated. I'm not reading in the original Latin or Greek. Um, but was one, he starts with those prayers and those invocations and the acknowledgement that he is not fully capable to deal with these issues without the help of God. Um, and then, um, but the other thing is uh, something that, you know, as we talk about coming back to, to scripture is we see in first Timothy, and this is something that I feel is missing, you know, um, in, in a lot of today's theology or philosophy of religion is that the goal, um, what, what is he, uh, you know, he, uh, Paul tells Timothy, tell people to stop preaching heresy or to even like false doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. Um, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And this idea that the, the point of uh, Cyril of Alexandria's work is very clearly like he talks about how much he loves the person he's writing to. And uh, there's just this heavy, and I, I hate even using the word ethical because there's this academic and like uh, study of aspect to it. But what, I, what I'm talking about is there is a loving aspect that needs to be returned to theology. That is the, the, the end goal of theology um, is truth, but it is truth aimed at love and truth as its own thing um, is it. You know, as like, oh, I just want the knowledge. It will be, it's uh, will become twisted. Um, and, and forgive me. And I, I had one more note because this is I, I have not seen the part you you mentioned something about Calvin talking about metaphysics guarding against heresy. But one of the things I appreciated about uh, Calvin is uh, I have not read through the entirety of the Institutes, but one thing that really struck me was he, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, if it's true, it's true. Like light comes from God. So if it's true, it's God's truth. And so, and that's, I, you know, I think that's another, uh, that goes along with what he's talking about with metaphysics. He's like, he has this fear of it probably cause he's a, he's, you know, even this concern of like, it's not necessarily loving and it can just get become like this endless people who are, uh, proud, but that the end goal is how can we better love people? And it's, that's the end goal should be the end goal of all truth. And I think that's something that, I don't know. I don't know if that, that's the end of this entire discussion. And by that, I mean the goal of this entire discussion. Um, but as we talk about like the modernistic approach, it does seem to often be knowledge for knowledge's sake. So I'm sorry. I know mm -hmm. I talked a while there, but I, I'm curious. What are your thoughts as you hear that? Yeah. Uh, well, of course, I'm, I do think what I'm doing and what we're talking about is entirely modern. Uh, and uh, there's a picture of Moses on the front of the book, I think very attractive. And uh, someone, uh, a friend wrote to me and said, oh, oh, it's very traditional pictures. It's a very traditional book. Well, you know, in a sense, <laughs> Christianity is quite traditional, but, but it's also, it's about call and response. Nothing is more contem contemporary in life. I mean, actually a lot of French phenomenology is about call and response right now in a different key. But I think that this, um, uh, 
One thing that struck me again with Moses and with Moses as a threnody in the book, again, I felt I was spending so much time at the burning bush. And I actually wrote, wrote, um, uh, well, well, in the, the time of writing this book, I wrote a lot on creation ex nihilo. I also wrote a book called Sisters of Sinai um, that was um, the true story of, of two wonderful Presbyterian ladies who just went out to Mount St. St. Catharines and discovered an ancient manuscript of the Gospels in Syriac. So I felt I spent so much time around the burning bush, but Moses is such a figure because Moses um, is a figure for desiring God. Moses is always asking to see God's face, and um, Moses, most beloved, Moses is you know one of the few people in Scripture that God describes as a, a friend, and Moses has to see God's face, and this is only allowed you know the famous hide in the cleft of the rock, and God passes before him, proclaiming his name. Um, but Moses only sees God's backside, which is apparently quite frank in the Hebrew. So, but, you know, people, Philo will mention this, and Gregory of Nyssa in his Life of Moses, following Philo, will say this, that, and he, Gregory says a lovely thing. He says, um, even dearly beloved Moses most beloved of God, um, wasn't allowed to see God's face. Uh, um, he said, sees God's back. But then Gregory says, uh, well, our Lord, here Gregory means Jesus, our Lord didn't say, those who, who want to um, uh, be my disciples, go ahead of me. But those who want to be my disciples, follow me. And those who follow see the back. Right. So it's a rather nice thing. That, but he also, Gregory has a strong sense of the mystery of God, that he's always desiring. And they will cite Paul again and again, yearning and seeking. So there's a strong element of desiring. And I think maybe what happens in the early modern period is um, because of the wars of religion and needing to score points off different Christian groups, bad, bad thing to do. And, and then needing in, in modernity to defend Christianity against attacks by atheism, um, we, we move into this more, we cease to think about the desiring element that you've uh, articulated, I think, too, that a loving God is, is about seeking God, seeking God's face, seeking always, seeking always. And that uh, introduces a, an element of modesty to what we're on about. And I think introduces a way to think about what theology is. So theology can't be just a writing down of all the facts about God according to me. You know, it can't be that. Um, I, I think there was a, a nice uh, quote from um, the or Greek Orthodox theologian Andrew Louth uh, in, in the introduction where I, he says, I'm talking about how naming God is a practice, the practice of theologia, where theology is not so much knowledge about God as knowledge of God through contemplation, prayer, and above all, praise. So that's got to be a grounding of our theology. And it doesn't mean that it can't be rigorous and it can't be analytic and appropriately so. Um, but what's it for? It's not for putting God in a box. Um, if anything, it should free us from thinking that we we can do so. There's, again, a wonderful quote from Augustine, I think, in the De Trinitate, where he says, from the very fact that we don't understand ourselves, we can only imagine how much we don't understand God. You know, but that doesn't mean we don't know God. It doesn't mean we don't love God. It doesn't mean we know, don't know God's saving, loving, saving acts. 
um, and we're brought back again and again to scripture. Yeah, I, even as you you talk about that quote from Augustine, the first thing that came to mind was, uh, if my wife would be displeased if I I tried to just capture her merely in facts and considered that a relationship, how much more, <laughs> you know, like if I was like, well, I got you figured out, honey. I have this list of fifty things. You know, I don't think she would appreciate that. I'm like, how much more this create a uh, creator who created from nothing, created from emptiness, like the, I, the idea I'd have that. Um, Fully encapsulated. Um, Dr. Saskis. And the wonderful thing that this God is precisely the God who bends down to speak to Moses. You see, that that's where these two things come together. This is not a God who can't be present to the world. This is a God who's entirely present to the world at every moment. And and of course, this dwelling of God with man. There's a wonderful book by the Jewish philosopher Michael Wishgerod, where he points out, I think correctly, that the Christian doctrine of the incarnation would be impossible without, without Judaism because it comes this idea that God could be present while being, as it were, um, the Holy One is, is, you know, there in the Moses story. It's there in the idea that God is in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's there in the idea that God dwells in the tabernacle. It's there in the idea that God dwells in the temple. This idea is already there. Um, framing, um, well, will become in, in Christian terms the, the doctrine of the incarnation, uh, where God tabernacles amongst human beings. Yes, the the literally in John one, right? It uses that verb for for tabernacling. It does. Yeah, um, Doctor Saskis, it is. I want to be respectful of your time, but it's been awesome having you on. If you could leave our audience with one thing to uh, contemplate this week, uh, to think about as they walk around after listening to this, what would it be? No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Well, I've already said ultimacy, God's ultimacy and intimacy are one, but I I noticed in your podcast uh, and your description that you're concerned for the truth. And I think the same, and Augustine said the same, truth is one. Where we find it, it is truth. And to, to be confident, confident seekers after truth, and not, um, if you're a Christian, be frightened about what that might mean for you, but to just go forward seeking and loving and trusting that all will be well. <laughs> uh, what a wonderful way to end. Dr. Saskis, it's been a real pleasure today. Thank you. Thank you very much, PJ. PJ.